This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Guys, that is Luke 24, 1 through 6. I forgot to tell you guys happy early Easter on last Thursday's episode, so I'm hitting you with a happy belated Easter. I hope you guys had a great weekend. Again, it's a great weekend to celebrate the rising of our Lord, and it's not the Easter Bunny thing, even though everyone's like, ah, you know, what did the Easter Bunny bring you, or that kind of thing. It's good to have that time of year where we focus on the resurrection of Jesus. Wanted to remind you guys also from the beginning that we are a 100% listener-supported show and ministry, so if you guys would love to support our content that we're putting out there and put us out there to even more audiences and more people, go to undaunted.life backslash donate. That's how you can hop in on doing all this. And also, very, very soon, I was hoping to do it this week or next week. It may be a little bit delayed. I'm going to be making an announcement about Undaunted Life merchandise because we were begged for forever, hey, Kyle, you got to start doing merch, got to start doing merch. We did merch, but we're going to make some some changes. Uh, to kind of how we do that. We're going to be doing things as opposed to kind of like a running store. We're going to be doing more like drops and things like that. So it should be pretty interesting and way easier for guys like you that actually listen to the show and consume this every week to get our our swag and kind of wear it around. So we'll be getting more information about that out to you, hopefully within the next three, four weeks. But before we get into today's content, I just wanted to do a very, very quick PSA about Joe Rogan. So I was listening to a Joe Rogan episode this morning and I I just kind of wanted to throw this out there to you guys. I was going to put it in the quick resilience boost at the end, but I figured, you know, if you if you stop listening by then, I think this is still important to kind of mention. Guys need to be fairly wary about Joe Rogan when they're listening to Joe Rogan, okay? Because I know a lot of men that listen to Joe Rogan. I know a lot of Christian men that listen to Joe Rogan. The thing about Joe Rogan is he is a fantastic podcaster. I love his fight commentary. He's a talented, you know, comedian, and, and he's an incredibly talented guy, but he's not without his faults. And that is uh, on full display on an episode from about a week ago uh, with David Mamet. And so that's episode 1801, if I can remember, I'll put it in the show notes, but 1801, David Mamet, you know, it's put out in April, so you should be able to find it there on Spotify. It was concerning to me how many things that he said that were just flat out wrong. This guy's got, again, he's, he's an atheist. He, or, you know, he'd probably consider himself an agnostic or something like that. Every time he talks about the Bible, he makes a complete, you know, he, he makes a moron out of himself. He, he doesn't understand how he got the Bible today. He doesn't understand about how it was transcribed and passed down. He has no idea about how it was translated. He has no idea about the historicity of the Bible. And yet he talks about it as if he knows, as if it's old hat. And him and David Mamet were having a conversation. This guy's like a Hollywood guy, you know, a playwright, and he's written these books, and now he's kind of a conservative commentator. But I want you to listen to this interview because about halfway through, I was like, it was almost egregious how Joe Rogan was, was talking to this guy, like almost pretending like he didn't understand what the guy was saying. And the guy seemed to be making very, very good sense. And it reminded me, I believe of the second time that Ben Shapiro came on his show, Joe Rogan had it out for Ben Shapiro in that second episode. He's, you could tell after the first episode, people were, you know, probably telling him behind the scenes, Hey, you were too nice to this guy. Like he's an Orthodox Jew and he's a conservative. You got to hit him more. And so he definitely hit him more in a subsequent conversation. It felt like a lot of that was going on here. And so Joe Rogan has a tendency to say things that you like and that you agree with. 
But that doesn't mean you should take his philosophy wholesale. And so that's just my warning to you guys from the beginning. Again, I'm a Joe Rogan Experience fan. I listen to the show. I think two out of three of uh, the last uh, few years, I give my episode of the year when I do the best podcast of the year to a Joe Rogan Experience episode. I love a lot of his conversations. But go and listen to that episode and see if you notice anything a little bit different about what he's doing. Now let's move on to something else. We're going to be doing some format changes to the podcast. Very, very minor format changes. I know a lot of you guys like the way that we do things. But we're going to be introducing a segment from here on out on the Thursday podcast called Quick Hitters. Okay. So basically what I'm going to do is assuming all things equal, Tuesdays will be interviews and Thursdays will be me just doing solo episodes. There will be some weeks where I'll double up on interviews or double up on solo episodes. It really just depends on what we have going on. But what I plan to do on these Thursday episodes moving forward is I'm going to talk about whatever topic or you know news or philosophy that I want to, and then I'm going to do a quick hitter segment. And so that's going to be a segment where I hit news stories that have happened in the last week or since I recorded last that I think are pertinent for us to, to, to discuss and for me to give you my just generalized thoughts on but maybe I'm not going to spend 45 minutes to an hour on this one topic. And the reason why I'm doing that, the, the main reason, I guess, I get asked about certain news topics all the time. I have people shoot me DMs. I have friends send me text messages. Hey, have you heard of this? Hey, have you heard of this? And most of the time I've heard of something, but there are times too where I'm like, oh man, I didn't even know that this was happening. And so I know a lot of you guys aren't really getting any... I guess, any guidance from a pastor or someone that's discipling you on some of these areas. And so I want to make sure that we can do that. And so I'm going to do kind of the initial thing that I'm going to be talking about, but then three, four, five, maybe six of these quick hitters. So I can just talk through some of these things without going, you know, into too terribly much detail unless it warrants that. So for today's show, we are officially launching the quick hitters segment and we're doing it in the most over the top, exaggerated manner possible. And I likely won't ever do it like this again, but I'm going to go over all of the biggest news, in my opinion, that happened since I've been out of the studio. All of it. Yes, I'm, I'm totally serious. Here's the thing. I've been keeping a list since January. Yes. Yes, January. I've been gone that long from the studio. Last week was my first week back, you know, doing solo episodes. And I'm going to go over all the stuff that I very likely would have done shows on, or at least would have mentioned. So you might be thinking, Kyle, is this about to be like a nine, 10 hour long podcast? No, it's not. I'm going to do my absolute level best to be incredibly, incredibly brief in describing most of these topics. But here's the thing. I'm going to be relying on some of you guys to understand some of these topics. Like I'm not going to go into, you know, a full on history of all these different things and all the different tendrils that come off of these different topics. I'm going to try to keep it pertinent to the meat and potatoes and give you my overall thoughts. So, and, and also I kind of spent some time trying to figure out how I would rank order this list and in terms of importance. And I just didn't think that would be a very good way of doing things. You know, do I rank it on biggest stories or most recent or least recent? Essentially, I decided to go in the order that I wrote them down in my notes on my phone, which isn't necessarily chronological, but it's generally chronological. So guys, if you stick with me through the end of this episode, I'm going to be covering a lot of stuff to include Super Bowl halftime show, the Canadian prime minister, Justin Trudeau enacting the emergency act, Leah Thomas, you know, becoming the greatest male women swimmer of all time, Florida parental rights bill, nomination and confirmation of now justice Kentonji Brown Jackson, Kane Velasquez being arrested for attempted murder, the major league baseball lockout, Jorge Masvidal attacking, really jumping Colby Covington, the Disney drama and all that stuff, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Will Smith smacking Chris Rock, abortion laws in Maryland, Colorado, Oklahoma, and Florida, the NFL expanding the Rooney rule, the five murdered babies in D.C., Elon Musk trying to buy Twitter, the shooting on the New York City subway, and a bunch more. And a bunch more. Okay? 
And just so you know, guys, I had to cut this list off somewhere. So I cut it off on Easter Sunday. So it's like, okay, I'm not going to consume any more news on Easter Sunday. I'm recording this the Monday before it comes out. Okay. So guys, if a nuke is shot by Russia in the next few days, sorry, I'm not mentioning that on this show. If, uh, you know, Elon Musk decides he's going to buy Twitter and Facebook and Apple all at the same time or something. Okay, great. Like I'm going to miss that, but just guys, here we go. Deep breath. We can do this. Stick with me through the end. There's going to be a lot of great content. Let's get into it. All right. The first thing here, there's an education crisis for men and boys. So I didn't mention this in the list earlier, but there's a tweet from Andrew Yang on January the 27th, which, you know, spawned a lot of different conversations. And here's the tweet. Men now comprise only 40 and a half percent of college students and are falling in or failing in high school at much higher rates. There's a crisis among American boys and men that is too often ignored and is definitely going to be unaddressed. Definitely going unaddressed. So here's the thing: Andrew Yang, he's a Democratic commentator. He ran for president and ran for you know mayor of New York, and you know he did New York City. It didn't really work out, all those things. But this is a Democrat that's talking about something that no one is really talking about on either side of the aisle, which is the boy crisis. Now, some of you have kind of looked at these things, but men are failing out of college and they're deciding they don't even want to go to college. I remember when I was reading 12 Rules for Life, that's Jordan Peterson's first really big bestseller. He was talking about how, especially the humanities and these college campuses, they're communicating to these young men and boys that this is not for you. Like we didn't build this for you. We don't have you in mind. Also the patriarchy, you're bad. Also white. So you're horrible and, and you know, you're an oppressor and all these different things. And so men in general, especially white men, the, these guys are not doing that. And they're kind of jaded because they, their high school guidance counselor, as opposed to telling them to go to Votech, which we don't really have in schools anymore, try to learn a trade, you know, become a welder, a plumber, you know, a carpenter, something like that. They were told they have to get a four-year degree. They go to college, they fail out. Now they're just kind of like drifting in society and their dumb parents are taking them back into their houses and saying, yeah, sure. Sit around playing video games all day and don't contribute to the household and don't try to make yourself better. Yeah. Just stay here and, you know, kind of be a mama's boy or daddy's boy or something like that. But that's a major issue for us. And so again, we, we got a lot of ground to cover today. That's just something that I remember back in January, people were talking about. Um, and then it just kind of went away, but it'll keep getting worse. It'll keep getting worse and worse, especially in America, whenever we're not teaching our young men to value education or we're teaching them to go get a quote unquote education from a college that's going to give them a skill set that nobody wants. How many people out there listening to this have a college degree and you're doing a job that has nothing to do with your college degree? I would say most of you do. So something to keep in mind as we move forward in the future. All right, the Super Bowl halftime show. February the 13th, the Los Angeles Rams beat the Cincinnati Bengals. I was really going for the Bengals, right? Because, you know, they're, they've just been terrible for so long. And I was, you know, kind of wanting Joe Burrow to get that first title. But, you know, it is what it is. Uh, again, I don't really follow the NFL. I just kind of watched the Super Bowl because I was hanging out with some friends. The halftime show was Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Eminem, Kendrick Lamar, and Mary J. Blige. I cannot stand Mary, Mary J. Blige. Here's the thing about it. The, the really the only thing that came out of the halftime show, because the halftime show was fine. Like, I listened to all those people growing up. It is what it is. But the Eminem kneeling at the very beginning of his performance, obviously it was an ode to Colin Kaepernick and all these types of things. And, you know, he was the only non-person of color that was up there performing. And so, yeah, I'm sure he had to do something. And I guess 50 Cent uh, was a part of that um, part of that performance as well. But the thing is, is like, I'm not nearly as worried about the fact that he knelt during his performance as the fact that he played his most overrated song possible. So the song Lose Yourself is just, it's not good. Like, yeah, it's from the movie Eight Mile, and that's great. It's one of his biggest hits. But if you're an Eminem fan, that is one of the worst examples of him as an MC. So just kind of is what it is. 
And I'm kind of reminded at this point, after looking at the list of stuff I'm going to be talking about, like some of the stuff you're going to forget it even happened. Like it's going to seem like it was, you know, a million years ago just because the news cycle goes so crazy. But we'll get into the next one here. Justin Trudeau enacts the Emergencies Acts in response to the trucker convoy. So he's the prime minister of Canada. He's, you know, one of the least uh, impressive people on the world stage, but he is on the world stage. But on February the 14th, he, en he enacted the Emergency Act so he could take over parts of the government so that he could clear the convoy out of, uh, I forgot where the capital is, Ottawa or something like that. I'm, I don't really care. But the, the the trucker convoy was down there. It was a very dictatorial move that he did uh, to kind of clear those folks out. I was under the impression that he was probably going to hang on to that power for a, an extended period of time. But he did kind of, I guess, quote unquote, give that power back, if you can even say such a thing. But the thing is, is he he enacted an emergencies act for a, a peaceable assembly. Right. These people uh, in the trucker convoy. They weren't destroying things. They weren't hurting people. They were just, you know, a, you know, thorn in his side, right? And this kind of launched the U.S. Freedom Convoy. They drove from California out to D.C. and all those types of things. To be honest with you, the, the Canadian trucker convoy made a whole lot of sense because of what was going on in that country. But the one in America didn't really make sense at all. And I even had some friends that, you know, went out to the to the bridges as the trucks were driving by and they're hooting and hollering. I, I guess that's fine. Maybe that's how you show your patriotism or something like that. But it was like, what, what was the point? What exactly were you doing? The U.S. Freedom Convoy, like driving through a bunch of states that didn't have these horrific mandates like what they had in Canada and you were honking your horns and, you know, driving your trucks for, for what exactly they didn't disrupt uh, the Beltway. You know, there was thoughts that they would try to, like, disrupt the State of the Union address. And it was just kind of like eh, they just it didn't really make a lot of sense. But before I move on from that, it is kind of interesting to me that there is a huge difference that no one's really talking about between the trucker protests and the Black Lives Matter protests. So the Black Lives Matter protesters were incredibly violent. They killed people very destructive and the truckers had not been violent at all nor destructive they didn't destroy any government buildings they didn't topple over any police cars or throw any molotov cocktails they were just driving their trucks and parking them places and the second thing i guess is the black lives matter protests were based on lies and falsehoods whereas the truckers were, were based on you know the pursuit of freedom and liberty and, and you know fighting against tyranny because again every single person and we can name them because there's so few every single unarmed quote-unquote unarmed black man that is killed by police. And I say, quote unquote, unarmed, because a lot of these kiddos or a lot of these young men who are typically the ones that do these things, they were either on the way to getting a weapon, finding a weapon or had previously been using a weapon. They're not just walking around eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and they get shot by a cop like some people in Black Lives Matter would want you to believe. But all of these riots and everything are based on these lies, the lies that there's a systemically racist world that we live in that is hunting down and killing black people, you know, ad infinitum. It's just it's absolutely ridiculous. All right. The next bit I want to talk about is uh, keeping the Black Lives Matter thing going. A Black Lives Matter activist actually tried to kill a mayoral candidate after asking for gun control. So on February the 14th, Quintez Brown tried to shoot and kill Louisville Democratic mayoral candidate Craig Greensburg in Greensburg's office. So very quickly after this, he was bailed out by a Black Lives Matter supported bail fund because, of course, because, you know, bail is uh, obviously a racist thing that we have to get rid of. And so this guy that tried to kill somebody, luckily, this kid is such a horrific shot that at point blank range, he couldn't hit Craig Greenberg. OK, but the thing about it is, again, this is kind of putting the light and shining the light on bail reform and why a lot of these violent criminals, people that try to kill other people or do kill other people can get out almost same day. Again, if that's white supremacy, if we live in a white supremacist system, explain that one to me, how these people of color right? Or anybody of any race that is, you know, doing violence for any type of ideology. Because again, there were a lot of white people that got arrested during the George Floyd riots in Minnesota, and they were bailed out by the same bail funds. 
if you're doing things and destroying things based on an ideology that the left and people that fund the left appreciate, then that's okay. Everything else is white supremacy. In case you're taking notes, just write white supremacy across your pad, and that should be able to explain everything according to the BLM folks. All right, let's move on to Leah Thomas. So Leah Thomas, again, as I said from the top of the show, she, he, they, Zer is the greatest male women's swimmer of all time. Okay, so for anyone who has not been paying attention, Leah Thomas is a male. Leah Thomas is a man. Leah Thomas is a swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania and had competed and got a scholarship to begin his career as a collegiate swimmer on the men's team. All of a sudden, takes a year off, comes back to join the women's team, grows his hair out a little bit, probably wears makeup in his off time, has had no surgery, has had very little treatment, and all of a sudden is competing against the women. And the results are about what you would expect destroyed every single woman in every competition leading up to the NCAAs in March, where he won the 200 meter freestyle against, you know, swimming in a pool against a bunch of other women won by several seconds, which in swimming is an enormous period of time uh, because a lot of these races can, you know, the entire field can finish within a second or two of each other. The thing about it that I find interesting is to be fair, there were races at the NCAAs that he lost. When he was swimming against women, I don't have the, you know, the, the exact ones that he lost, but he lost some races to women and people are making a big deal of that. Be like, see, see this girl, what they would say, she didn't uh, win all of these races. So why are you saying there's such a big discrepancy? Now, the cynic in me thinks that he didn't go all out in those races. That's what the cynic in me would say, but perhaps those girls did just beat him. Maybe that happened, but I don't really believe that for a second, but they're, they're, they're talking about this in a way that that somehow makes it right. Because the way I see it is Leah Thomas, he took spots from other swimmers that would have been in the pool competing that day. They could have been seniors. This could have been their last time to be able to compete at the collegiate level. And yet their spot was taken by a male. The same could be said for men that enter these women's, you know, uh, cycling competitions and weightlifting competitions and things like that. People's like, oh, it's not that big a deal. They didn't win. Whether they win or lose, they, they stole a spot from somebody because there are girls like there was a girl specifically. I can't remember the girl's name. I can't remember what school, but she was supposed to be in the final of that 200 meter freestyle. But I think there were 10 people competing all at one time. She was number 11. Okay. And so her spot to race in a final in her best race in her senior year was stolen by Leah Thomas, a male. Okay. Now the thing about it is, is we do have to protect women's and girls sports. And there are a lot of states that are moving to do those types of things to protect and say that only biological males can compete in male sports and only biological females can compete in female sports. And this is a big, big deal, but also I got to put a little bit of the onus back on Leah Thomas's teammates, his teammates, because we kept getting these, you know, drops like the, an insider spoke to some of the teammates and all the girls on the team said, we hate it. This is so stupid. It's bringing terrible attention. He's, he's not good. Or, and some of them would even use his preferred pronouns, which would be female pronouns. Uh, they're saying that he walks through the locker room with his junk out, right? He says he's a woman, but he has a dick and balls. And so it's like, oh, we're just supposed to be okay with that. But none of them came forward publicly. Now I understand why. Because they would automatically be castigated for the rest of their lives as being a bigot, transphobe, all the things. But none of them would speak up publicly. Very few people like, you know, there aren't prominent swimmers coming out talking a bit against this. Kayla Decky's not talking about it. You know, uh, I'm trying to think of any other famous swimmer like that would you know be a women's swimmer. They're not coming out and saying that this is a bad thing. And it's only if there's a groundswell. Like, what if Michael Phelps got up and said, yeah, I, I don't think that 
if I was having issues mentally that I should have been able to compete against the women, he's the greatest swimmer of all time by a mile, right? But that's kind of an issue. I like that states are really going out there and, and taking it to um, to a lot of these laws and to a lot of these kind of woke left agendas in terms of trying to like, I don't know what exactly these people are doing. Like, how do they think? I want to hear from the feminists. Like, where are the feminists at? Like, you know, because they had to fight to even get women's sports a time ago. Now they have women's sports and now men are going in and dominating the women's sports. Again, I think how this is all going to really change is when a high profile sport has something like this, because nobody watches swimming. They watch it once every four years in the Olympics. They're not watching the NCAAs. It's just not something that anybody pays attention to. But what about basketball? Again, I bring this up all the time. We need one boy, whether he believes he's a girl or not, to, to say, you know what? I got a scholarship to play for KU. Uh, on the men's team, but I'm feeling kind of girly these days. So I think I'll comp- compete for the girls division, right? I'll play on the girls team. And if they just go with that and say it, not only will they win every single one of their games, this guy would break every single scoring record ever by every girl. And he might even double or triple it up. But a quick side note before I move on for this, I find it very interesting that Leah Thomas is a male that identifies as a female. Okay. And is allowed to compete against the women. But there's another swimmer named Isaac Hennig, okay? Isaac Hennig, a swimmer from Yale, is a female that identifies as a male but competes against females. Again, for those of you with a functioning brain where none of this should make sense, Leah Thomas is a male that identifies as female, competes against females. This Isaac Hennig person is a female that identifies as a male but competes against females. Isn't that interesting? So essentially, Isaac Hennig is just taking steroids. It's a chick on steroids competing against chicks that are not allowed to take steroids because they're illegal, because they're banned, because they give you a performance advantage. But if you say that you think you're a male, well, we have to give you testosterone. It's, it's really the right thing to do. This is how we can support you. This is how we can love you. It's ridiculous and it's stupid. Moving on to something else that was stupid, the Major League Baseball lockout. So on March the 12th, Major League Baseball owners and the Major League Baseball Players Association reached a collective bargaining agreement, a new one, just in time to salvage a 162-game regular season. So here's the thing, is this is a constant, you know, back and forth between the owners and between the players and things like that. And, and there were some good things that came out of this. I mean, the thing that I that I love the most about all this is there's a universal DH now, for those of you that don't follow baseball. You, in the National League, the pitcher had to hit for himself, but in the American League, for decades and decades, I think, but since the seventies, you could have a designated hitter. So this person doesn't play the field. They just hit, but now you have the designator hitter in both leagues. Again, I love this. I don't like seeing pitchers up there that are paid, you know, tens of millions of dollars every year to throw pitches, to go up there and swing a garden hose and, and have a zero average. It's not really interesting to me. There's some cool things about that. The thing I kind of hate about it is they expanded the playoffs to 12 teams. I loved it when it was just eight teams. I went to the playoffs, the major league baseball playoffs meant something. The regular season meant something like, look right now, like didn't the NBA expand the playoffs? I'm not paying attention to the NBA anymore, but I, I saw on the screen where there was like a nine seed versus 10 seed. I'm like, what, 20 teams now make the NBA playoffs? Like how terrible do you have to be to not make the playoffs? So I liked the exclusivity or liked the exclusivity of the Major League Baseball playoffs. So they explained that. But here, just in general, I'm typically with the owners in any of these disputes, any of these collecting bar- collective bargaining disputes, because the owners are the ones that are taking the most risk. They're the ones that are having to figure out how to build the stadium, how to pay for the stadium, how to employ people. They're the ones that sign the contracts. And here's the thing. These players that are complaining, and there were a lot of high-profile, highly-paid players that were coming out talking about how evil the owners were and how they're trying to steal money from them and all these different things. I just want to go down for you. This, this interesting list 
of some of the top contracts that are currently on the books in Major League Baseball. Okay. And one thing to keep in mind as I go through these contracts is they're all guaranteed contracts. Meaning if this person sucks for the rest of their career, they get paid that amount. If they, you know, fall off a curb, break their leg, and they can't play baseball anymore, they get paid that full amount. Okay. So let's go down the list. Mike Trout, 12 years, $427 million. Mookie Betts, 12 years, $365 million. Francisco Lindor, 10 years, $341 million. Fernando Tatis Jr., 14 years, $340 million. Bryce Harper, 13 years, $330 million. Corey Seager just signed this one, 10 years, $325 million. Giancarlo Stanton, 13 years, $325 million. Garrett Cole, the first pitcher I've mentioned, 9 years, $324 million. Manny Machado, 10 years, $300 million. Nolan Arenado on my St. Louis Cardinals, 9 years, $275 million. Okay? So in the top 10, the worst contract is 9 years, $275 million. And we go down from there. There are plenty of other people that have nine-figure contracts. There are plenty of people that are signed, you know, for these two or three year deals where they're making five, six million a year, which in, in terms of some of these contracts seems paltry, but that is life changing money. That is, you know, family tree changing money, right? None of them are complaining about that. None of these players are complaining about the fact that they could literally sign that deal and be paltry for the rest of their career and still get that money. So who's taking the risk here? Because the baseball players are like, well, you know, without us, they wouldn't even have a sport, right? But without them, what would you be doing? Like they would be doing something else. They would, they're entrepreneurs. They would have some other business. What would you be doing? Mike Trout, Fernando Tatis, Garrett Cole. What would you be doing if not this? You're playing a sport. You're playing a child's game as a job and getting paid a ridiculous amount. You're making most people's salaries for the year in a game. Even if he didn't play like Mike Trout right now, he's, I think he got hit by a pitch on the hand or something like that. He may be out for a couple of days. He's getting paid still. So I don't want to hear this nonsense. Again, I'm with the players, uh, you know, in terms of some of that stuff, but really I'm with the owners. If we don't have the owners, we don't have this league. It definitely bends more in their direction, in my opinion. All right, next one here. Ron DeSantis, who's the governor of Florida, he signed the parental rights and education bill into law. So this happened back in March. And this is what the bill does. Okay. The bill bans classroom discussion of gender identity and sexual orientation for school children age K through K through three. Okay. So that's five, six, seven, eight year olds. Okay. Now for my money. And in my opinion, I don't think the bill goes far enough. I remember when I first heard about this bill, there was before all the kerfluffle about it. I'm like only K through three. Is that, is that it? So, so we want our state employees, our government employees to be talking about gender identity and sexual orientation and sex in general with our fourth graders, like for my money, I think this should run K through 12. If you want them to talk about it when they're 18 years old and in college and have professors do it, sure. That's on you. Cause you're paying for that directly with the tuition and fees and things like that. But for this, it's like, again, until every teacher in every public school has all of their kids up to grade level competency, why in the hell are we talking about this stuff? I'm not saying it's not important, but it's certainly not important in English class. I think I may have told you this before. There's a middle school that's very, very close to my house. In, in again, Edmond Public Schools is typically always number one or number two in terms of school districts in the state of Oklahoma. It's a top 100 school district in the entire country, believe it or not. But a substitute teacher came in. I think it was an English class. He went up to the board. This is a guy, but he wrote his uh, his pronouns, his they, them pronouns on the board, said he was non-binary, explained what that meant to him, and then it opened it up for Q&A. He's a substitute teacher, right? Substitute. And yet here he is talking about that. 
when his job that day was to walk in and say, uh, yeah, what page in the book did y'all get to yesterday? Oh, 74. Okay, everybody ch- uh, go to page 75 and we'll start from there. Who would like to read the first section? That's your job. Not to go in there and talk about that nonsense. So I don't think K through three went far enough, but here's the thing. Almost immediately Democrats and the mainstream media started dubbing this thing. The don't say gay bill. And you know what? I just got to give it up to the mainstream media and the Democrats and other leftists. That's what this bill is called. Now I know it's called the parental rights and education bill, but if you say that it doesn't roll off the tongue as easily as don't say gay. And it's easier to put on a bumper sticker and a t-shirt and a sign that you hold up because you don't have a job and you're sitting there at 10 o'clock in the morning outside the Capitol in Florida, you know, freaking out and going crazy and screaming at the sky, I guess. But again, they dubbed it the don't say gay bill, but the word gay doesn't even appear in the bill, in the bill at all. And so what people are saying is like, well, if you're a gay teacher, you can't really, you know, talk about, you know, your partner and you can't really talk about any of those things. And a lot of people point this out, but it's the, the same thing is true for me. Growing up in school, I had dozens of different teachers going up. I didn't even know that these people were married. I could assume that they were married if they were wearing a ring or if they mentioned my husband or my wife, the only people, the only teachers I knew of that were married were the Adairs and the Bears because I had their, like they worked in the same school with their significant other, right? So Mr. Bear taught calculus and Mrs. Bear taught AP English. I had both of them, so I knew they were married. I didn't know anything else about my teacher's personal lives and it did not affect me negatively in terms of my education. You know why? Because when I'm at school, I'm supposed to be there to learn. That's my job as a student is to learn. My job is not to become an expert at you and your personal life. It's to become an expert at algebra or, or English or whatever class I'm in at that moment. Okay. But again, I got to give it up to him. It's called the don't say gay bill. And that's how it's kind of been dubbed. But the thing about it is the, the thing that's great to see for people that are like me, you know, more right wing, more conservative is it's great to see that Democrats and leftists seem to be very, very concerned that they won't be able to talk to your kids about sex. They won't be able to explain things about gender ideology and they won't be able to, you know, show you things that your parents wouldn't show you or your pastor wouldn't show you or your peace wouldn't show you. They're very, very concerned that there are people paying attention now, which should make all of us a little bit wary about what our children have been seeing up to this point. Because again, COVID was that big through point for a lot of people because all of a sudden we're doing Zoom school as if that's real school and, you know, mom and dad are just kind of around the house and they're hearing what their kids are being taught and they're like, what is this garbage? This is, this is geometry class. What are y'all talking about? Right. And so I think that this bill is a massive win for governor DeSantis. I want all States that think like uh, the people in Florida to, to engage in this topic and to bring similar bills to their States, because this is an important thing for us as parents to stand up. And it's one of the most egregious things I've ever seen in politics for the Democrats and leftists to basically create a voting block out of parents and to put that voting block on the other side, on the opposite side of them on all these different you know, elections and campaigns. It, it's just astonishing that they would make a mistake like that. But again, I think it's a massive win for DeSantis. DeSantis is my boy. I hope he runs in 2024. I hope Trump doesn't run. It's kind of one of those deals. We'll get more into that later, especially later on this year. But that's the thing, guys, is this is going to be happening in the public school system. Again, Edmond, Oklahoma, where I live is a very conservative town in a very conservative state. And the they, them pronoun crap happened a few miles away from my house. Okay. So if you think it's not going to happen in your district and I know my kids, teachers and all those different things, are you sure? Because guess what? Those students may have never been exposed to that before until that day. Now, all of a sudden they're like, wait, a person can be non-binary because they're dumb. They're in middle school. They're morons, right? And now all of a sudden they have this idea contagion in their brain that perhaps you can just be whatever gender you want to be that day. 
And, and one thing before I leave this topic, there's been a lot of, you know, consternation about the use of the word groomer. A lot of people on the conservative side of the aisle are talking about groomers, like all these people in these schools, like, oh, you're trying to groom children. And that's why you don't want this bill to go through and all these different things. And I think the use of that word is okay in certain circumstances, but the term groomer really is supposed to mean somebody that is grooming somebody for a sexual relationship. So when you talk about a pedophile, which we're not supposed to call them that anymore, we're supposed to call them minor attracted people, whatever that is, but those people are grooming a kid to get them used to them so that whenever they decide they finally want to penetrate them, that it's going to be okay. At least they've kind of come up with the idea that it's going to be okay. So that's really what a groomer is. A useful idiot, like a teacher that sees the, the gender bred man or, you know, the gender fairy or unicorn or whatever. And they bring that into the classroom because they just, you know, well, they don't want to be mean to anybody. And like, they, they, they want everybody to feel comfortable in their classroom. And they're, there's very emotive and all those different things. Calling that person a groomer is a bit unfair. However, that person is definitely aiding groomers because sexual groomers are using this content to sexualize children. And again, I'm going to say this before I move on. The big thing that everybody thinks I'm crazy about when I say is that pedophilia is the next line in the culture war. There's been the LGBTQ uh, revolution, you know, the gay marriage stuff, you know, all this stuff going on about race. The very next thing to be inside the Overton window is going to be adults having relationships with children. Because again, if you're eight year olds and eight years old and you can consent to having your gender changed. To, to taking puberty blocking hormones or to getting surgeries to chop off your genitals or to create fake genitals or something like that. If you can do that at the age of seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old, why can't you have a sexual partner? That's an adult. That's the next thing. I'm just telling you. All right. Next thing here, Disney. Okay. So Disney came under a lot of uh, flack over the last couple of months. Uh, they're planning to use their platforms. If you didn't know for L the LGBTQ agenda. So Disney came out big time in opposition to the Florida parental rights and education bill. Um, and it was one of those things where it's like, did anybody really care what Disney's opinion was on this? But you know, they're in Florida or at least, you know, uh, part of their offices. I think that's Disneyland. I can't remember which one Disneyland, Disney world, one of those two. And they came out in opposition to this. The CEO, I can't remember the guy's name of D Disney. He came out initially and he was like, yeah, we're not really going to talk about this. It's not really uh, applicable. And then, you know, probably a dozen people that work for Disney, a company with tens of thousands of employees complained. And all of a sudden he's, he's a culture warrior now. All of a sudden he wants to come out. But the big thing that parents really saw and re really caused them to really evaluate what they're going to be doing is leaked video came out. I think it was Christopher Rufo that released it on Twitter where there was a Disney producer. She said that she could easily implement a not at all secret gay agenda. That was actually her quote, not at all secret gay agenda into the content she was working on. She was working on a kid's show for Disney channel. Okay. And so she was sliding in the gay agenda into the content she was producing. Okay. And then Disney corporate president, Kay, uh, Carrie Burke, she also chimed in during the meeting and implored the company to add more LGBTQ, whatever stuff to the characters uh, that are going to be in the content that the company is making moving forward. Okay. So when all that was released, it wasn't a conspiracy theory anymore because all these conspiracy theories, there's just, they're just conspiracy theories until they're not until they're confirmed until we see the evidence, until we see the receipts. This is one of those things as well. People have been saying and sounding the alarm on Disney for a long time saying, look, they don't have your children's best interest at heart. They're creating content that is damaging to them. They're putting in a very leftist agenda into the stuff that they're doing. People are like, Oh, you're crazy. That's nuts. Why would anyone say something like that until we see this? Because it was leaked video from an internal meeting. This content was not ever supposed to be broadcasted on the news or on social media. And all of a sudden, here we are, and we understand that now. And so what it's led to is the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which is there are people that are going to be fighting back, and they're not just going to be doing it by saying, you should you know, boycott Disney. 
Don't go to Disneyland anymore. Like don't have Disney plus anymore, which I'm with you on that. I've never gone to Disneyland or Disney world. It's not a big part of my childhood, but if I had Disney plus right now, and I knew that I couldn't just sit my kid down in front of the television and let television babysit him for a half hour to an hour without some of these ideologies being you know, thrust into their brains, you know, I would be you know pissed off about that too. But the Daily Wire, so the conservative uh, news media source that most of you guys know, and you know, you know uh, Matt Walsh and uh, Jeremy Boring and Andrew Clavin and Candace Owens and Ben Shapiro and all those guys, they announced that they were going to be investing $100 million over the next three years to creating kids content. So they're calling it DW Kids. They announced this at the end of March. They had kind of a town hall that I actually watched live on YouTube, and they're putting their money where their mouth is. So a lot of conservative organizations, they ask for donations. Like we're one, like we ask for donations. What they're doing is they're creating the marketplace so that people will give their money to things that they support. And so they're trying to create an environment with these shows. They hired the guys that, you know, created VeggieTales that wrote the initial, initial VeggieTales stuff. And they're saying to these people, they're like, look, um, we want to create content that you can set your kids down in front of the television screen. And it's going to have the, it's going to have the right morals. It's going to have uh, none of this ideology that comes from the left, any of this Marxist ideology, things like that, but it's going to be safe content for you to set your kids down and, and let them absorb. It's going to teach them about, you know, all the values that are conservative values and really biblical values, uh, whether they're going to be talking about biblical values or not, all the different morality that we get from the word of God should be coming out through that. So I think that that's an amazing thing for us to pay attention to. And I'll make sure at the end of the show to tell you how you can support the day daily wire as they move forward and march into that world. So we've made it, you know, you know, over a half hour into the show and we haven't talked about Ukraine yet. So we got to kind of get into that again. I'm just going based on uh, the, the order that I wrote in my, in my notes. But obviously a couple of months ago, Vladimir Putin decided to take his Russian forces and invade Ukraine. Here's the deal. Ukraine has fought back, you know, more so and stronger than anyone could have hoped uh, that and or the Russians were not nearly as strong as we thought, um, because we thought in the initial days of this conflict that they were going to be taking over Kiev within a few hours. And here we are. Kiev is still in the hands of the Ukrainians. Vladimir uh, Zelensky, who runs Ukraine, uh, he's come out. He's kind of become a little superstar with some of the stuff that he's done and some of the quotes that he's had. But here's the thing. It's really hard to know what to think about this conflict. Once you get past the fact that Putin and Russia is clearly doing an evil thing by invading a sovereign country and killing innocent civilians, okay? Once you get beyond that, everything gets really, really, really muddy, okay? Because I've watched hours of of documentaries and news and listened to hours of podcasts about the conflict going on right now on the ground, also kind of how this conflict has been exacerbated through time, and I still don't have the foggiest idea exactly what's happening. And the news sources that we're getting out, there's been plenty of fake news that has come out of uh, the conflicts over there. There are clips that are being taken from video games and movies and being pawned off as here's actual war footage. And so when you see something that looks like an atrocity, you don't know if that's an atrocity that actually just happened that was perpetrated by this side or that side. So it's hard to kind of know what to do. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you what I think should happen, what I think shouldn't happen, but just a couple of thoughts that did come to mind. As I've been reflecting over the last couple of months, I think it's interesting that we as Americans are supposed to really, really care about protecting the freedom, the freedoms of the Ukrainian people that are half the world away, but not about the Afghanistan uh, conflict anymore. We're not supposed to be caring about the Afghanis anymore. I mean, when's the last time you thought about what's going on in Afghanistan? Because it is an absolute you know what show over there right now. Right. We're, we hope to have Holly McKay back on here in the next couple of months to talk about both situations because she's been in country for both of those things. But we're not thinking about Afghanistan anymore. But all of a sudden, all these people that wouldn't post anything about Afghanistan because it made Joe Biden look bad are flying Ukrainian flags outside their house or, or putting it in their, their Twitter or Facebook bio pictures or something like that. All of a sudden, 
They really, really care about Ukraine, but not about Afghanistan. And everyone's got something to say about that. But another thing that I was kind of thinking about, and a lot of people have talked about this, is that we as Americans were apparently willing to go to war to protect Ukraine's sovereign borders, but not our own sovereign border on the southern part of the United States. As you see, and as we'll, we'll certainly be talking about throughout the summer, there's been an absolute record deluge of illegal immigrants coming across the southern border. And these people, uh, you know, this was kind of quiet news for a while, and then it got out there. The Biden administration is busing and flying these people all over the country and just dropping them off. Right. Again, for them, they probably think that these are solid voters for them. But these are people. A lot of these folks are going to be on the on the on the dole. And, and it's a, it's going to be a hard thing for this country to absorb all these illegal immigrants. Again, we are a country of immigrants. But for you know decades and decades and decades, it was illegal immigration. The door was wide open. But at a certain point, you have to kind of close the doors. And if you don't have borders, you don't have a sovereign nation. And so I find it very, very rich that we're supposed to really, really care about the border between Ukraine and Russia, but not the one between the United States and Mexico. I find that hard to really follow. The thing is, is uh, I think the for us as Christian, as Christian men, we should pray for the people of Ukraine. We should pray for the plight of anybody that is being uh, unjustly murdered or hurt in in uh, really across the globe, right, including our own country. But it's a very, very tough thing. Again, like I said, it's a tough thing for me to sit here and, and think that we should we should care as Americans, not as Christian men, but as Americans about the plight of what's going on over there because we have our own issues here. And again, <clears throat> Ukraine is a very, very corrupt country. So if you say, give them all the money, give them all the weapons, we have no idea what that leads to either. But uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, last thing I'll say on this is this guy is, he's clearly not crazy. A lot of people think that he's nuts, so he's losing his mind. This guy's calculated. And I know Trump got trouble for saying he's a smart guy. He, he is a smart guy. He's done a lot of really, really smart things, but he's also done some dumb things. They've lost a bunch of generals over there that were in their army. And you would think, like, how can a general get killed? That's just how their warfare is taking place and how they've decided to do it. I think, um, you know, Putin may be a victim of having a bunch of yes men around him, telling him things are good when they're not good. And it's kind of led him to where he's at right now. So there you go on that. All right, next one here. The United States women's soccer team won their lawsuit and will now be paid the same as the men's team. This is even though they make uh, they generate a fraction of the revenue. But this was a lawsuit that was settled in February. The thing is, is I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because they've been complaining about not getting paid for all this time. They're like, look, we keep winning the World Cup and we're making a fraction of what the men do. But they don't understand basic market economics. They're, you win and that's great. But nobody likes watching you as much as they like watching the men. It's the same thing that complain about certain fighters that are better than big name fighters not making as much money. It's like it matters if people care to watch you. You're a prize fighter. The same thing in this. You're a professional athlete. And what you get paid should be commensurate with your level to be able to perform on the field and how much money there is to pay you with that. The thing about it is, is they're going to be paying them with imaginary money. They're probably going to be taking money from other places to make sure that they get paid. This is not a situation where logic, reason, and math apply, I guess, because again, when you're making so much less revenue from advertisements and anything else and just uh, attention, it doesn't matter if they won every game 10 nil and won every single gold medal out there. If you're not bringing in the same revenue, you shouldn't be paid the same. But they won the lawsuit. Who freaking cares? Let's move on. Kentanji Brown-Jackson, she is now a member of the United States Supreme Court. So Joe Biden picked her because she's a black female. And that's not just me saying that. That's him saying that. He said that from the beginning. Hey, if you vote for me in November, you know, I'll make sure that we have the first black woman on the Supreme Court. Thing about it is, is those were his only two criterion for picking this woman. Okay? She seems to be well-qualified. 
like in terms of just where she went to school and she did the things that a lot of other people that have gotten to the Supreme Court have done in terms of those types of things. But I talked a lot about this on John Cooper's show. So uh, whenever he came through Oklahoma City with Skillet, I went and we did an interview backstage beforehand. And so I'll put that link in the show notes. But let's talk about the Senate hearings a little bit because all of her hours spent in front of Congress can be boiled down to just a few things. She pretended to not be able to define what a woman is. I'm sure you saw that. She says that she can't define when life begins, and yet she's pro-choice. She doesn't think that child pornography is a big enough deal to sentence child pornographers and consumers harshly. She acted as if critical race theory isn't a thing that she's ever considered, which she clearly has. She's you know given speeches on it. And she acted as if she didn't have a fully fleshed out judicial philosophy. The entire thing was one giant obfuscation on her part, which, again, people on both sides of the aisle do that. That's not just a Kentucky Brown Jackson thing. That's not just a Democrat thing. It's just a thing thing. But again, it's not something that I'm, I had too much heartburn over because she was taking Breyer's seat. Breyer was a solid, I don't think, I can't remember a single thing where he broke off from the Democratic uh, people, the other Democratic or, or left-wing people that were on the court on any big decision. So she's just replacing a another seat that would have voted the exact same way. But it is crazy that someone like that, that believes the things that she does or pretends to believe and lies about certain things that that, that person's going to be on the Supreme Court, but whatever. Before we move on from that though, I do think that it's quite hilarious. All the pearl clutching that we saw from Democrats and leftists and the mainstream media, mainstream media saying that Kentonji Brown Jackson was mistreated during these events, that she was mistreated when she was front of Congress because they said that Kavanaugh was a gang rapist and that Amy Coney Barrett was part of a handmaid's tell style cult. So nothing even close to that. They said it was mean when people asked her, what's your judicial philosophy? What is a woman? What do you think about critical race theory? That's apparently beyond the pale, but you can make up a story out of nowhere about a guy being a gang rapist, and that's no big deal. It's uh, believe all women. It's me too. It's whatever. So ridiculous, but it kind of, it's kind of what you're going to be getting from that side of the aisle. All right, next one here. Mask mandates were lifted in the House of Representatives uh, and the state of California and the state of New York right around the time of the State of the Union address. Okay, kind of ridiculous, but. Didn't you see that one coming? Like it was always going to be, there's either going to be another variant. You know, I was calling it the midterm variant of, of COVID to where we can lock everybody down again, or magically it's going to be like, oh, we solved it. So right before the state of the union address, so Joe Biden can get up there and <laughs> stumble his way through talking about it. They lift all the mandates, all these different places. Of course. So just to talk a little bit about the state of the union address that happened on March the, the 1st, there, there's nothing really of note overall. Like from these things, there's not really anything noteworthy from most of these things. I think there was a Republican uh, House of Representatives member that screamed out at one point, just made a complete jerk of herself. Like that's such a stupid thing to do when someone's giving a speech. Just shut up and, you know, do your stuff from, you know, wherever you want to do it on social media later. Just shut up and let him get over with. But it was interesting what wasn't in his speech. Okay. For the parts that you can understand. I was reliably informed and I've been reliably informed that white supremacy was the greatest threat to the homeland. And yet Joe Biden didn't find any room in his speech that was over an hour to mention white supremacy. Probably just a minor oversight, but, you know, we'll kind of see moving forward. All right, next one here. Let's talk about Cain Velasquez. So Cain Velasquez, uh, the former, you know, or former UFC heavyweight champion, considered by many to be one of, if not the greatest heavyweight champion in the history of the UFC. I happen to think Stipe Miocic is, but uh, that's not what we're talking about. He was arrested for attempted murder. So this happened on March the 2nd. And so to kind of make this a very truncated version of the story, apparently... There was a man, a pedophile, that molested his daughter. 
Now, there was some uh, confusion at the beginning whether this was just a young uh, member of his family, extended family, but I'm pretty sure we've confirmed that it was his daughter that had been molested by this man multiple times. So that man had been arrested and he was being released. And so I think he's being released because he's going to try out later or something like that. And so Cain Velasquez decided that he was going to chase this man in his car and shoot him and kill him. Okay. So the man, uh, so there was the pedophile in the car. I think the pedophile stepfather uh, was the driver. And then there was something, someone else in the back seat. So Cain Velasquez chased this guy. I think they said it was for 12 miles. Okay. The reason why I know that is because a couple of weeks ago, I was having problems with some, one of my Apple devices and I had to drive from my house 12 miles to the Apple store in Oklahoma city. Edmonds just North of Oklahoma city. It took me about a half hour to get there. And I was driving highway pretty much the entire time. It took me about a half hour on the highway to go 12 miles and, you know, kind of go everywhere else. So for 12 miles for an extended period of time, Cain Velasquez in a rage was chasing somebody in his car. Eventually he runs that car off the road, gets out, shoots a single bullet into the car, misses the pedophile and hits the driver. Okay. So Cain Velasquez was arrested. He was not given bail uh, and he's going to be going away presumably for a pretty long time for what he did, you know, attempted murder, uh, you know, reckless endangerment, all kinds of things, right? I don't think they've, they've got all the charges you know, fully solidified right now. But the thing that I found that was crazy about this is immediately the, the greater MMA community to include fighters, coaches, Dana White, a bunch of other people came out in support of Cain Velasquez. Now I'm okay if you want to support Cain Velasquez because he's a great guy. I'm okay if you want to support him because, you know, he's, he's a great fighter. I'm okay if you want to support him because he's a great family man and all those things. But they're wearing these shirts that say free Kane and, and the hashtag free Kane every time that they talk about it. And I think that that is absolutely disgusting that they're doing that. Because what they're saying is, wouldn't you do the same if you were a father? Wouldn't you want to kill the guy that molested your children? Well, what links would you have gone to to do those things? And I get it. As a father, of two young boys, if I find out that those boys have been molested, I'm not saying that I wouldn't do the exact same thing. Okay. But Cain Velasquez didn't get his guy and we can go into the, you know, vengeance wasn't his, it's for the Lord and all that. And and that's true. But in this situation, the thing that's important to understand is for probably close to a half hour, he was weaving in and out of traffic and risked dozens and dozens of other lives because he was so angry and wanted to get even. And then when he had the opportunity to get even, he didn't even get the job done. Right? He shoots once into the car and misses the guy he was going for. It was reckless and it was absolutely ridiculous. Now, now here's the deal. The justice system failed by letting this pedophile out. Again, I'm very, very clear about this. I think rapists should be castrated and killed, and we should probably, you know, break, you know, a child rapist on the wheel before we chop their heads off like they used to do back in the old days. You know, what they actually used to do back in the old days is they would cut off your genitals and burn them in a fire in front of you, and so before you bled out, you would actually see your genitals being burned in front of you. I think that's probably a good thing to do for a pedophile, right? I can't wait for that clip to to be clipped later and used somewhere else against me, but I don't really care. I honestly feel that way. And again, as a father, I understand the anger and rage, but we can't just say that this is okay. Yes, the justice system failed. I get it, but it's not your place to even the score. And you're the, you know, you're one of the best fighters of all time. Why didn't you try to find a way to put hands on the guy? If that's what you really wanted to do, right? But no, he decided to risk the lives of so many people. And here's the other thing before we move on from this, because it's just making me mad. 
That little girl, Cain Velasquez's, I think it was a four-year-old daughter, she needs Cain more than anyone at this exact moment. And where is he? He's in prison. And he's going to be there for a long time. There's a chance he's going to be in prison for as long as she's a minor. There's a chance that she will not be able to see her father outside of, you know, the other side of, you know, prison glass until she's an adult. So I get the anger. I get the rage. I get wanting to even the score. I get it. Really. I'm telling you, I do it to the extent that it's not happened to me, but I can understand the feeling as a father. But that girl needs her father and she's not going to have him because he's an idiot and made a horrible, horrible, dangerous decision. So there's my thoughts on that. All right. <coughs> uh, guys, we're good. We're making it halfway through. Voice is given out, but we got more to talk about. Let's get into the next one here. They found Ernest Shackleton's ship. This is one of the coolest stories that happened while I was gone. So this is from the New York Post on March the 9th. One of the most storied shipwrecks in maritime history has been found off the coast of Antarctica some 107 years after explorer Sir Ernest Shackleton's vessel was crushed by ice and sank to the bottom of the sea. Organizers of the two-week expedition announced the historic find of the Endurance, that was the name of the ship, Wednesday at a depth of more than 9,800 feet in the Weddell Sea after a 144-foot wooden ship sank in 1915. The wreck, which is incredibly well-preserved because of how cold the water is, will be studied and filmed, but not distributed researchers, or not disturbed, rather, researchers say. So, Shackleton's story is absolutely incredible. It's in the book Endurance by Alfred Lansing. It's on the 100 books every modern Christian man should read list. So I'm not going to really go into the whole breakdown of the Ernest Shackleton story, but the fact that they found a wrecked ship in Antarctica of all places over a hundred years after it had set sail uh, for one of the most famous stories in the history of, you know, maritime anything. It's a pretty cool story. So again, check out the book Endurance by Alfred Lansing and check out our book list. I'll make sure the link to that is in the podcast notes as well. All right, let's talk about Jesse Smollett. Okay, so while I was gone, Jesse Smollett was sentenced. Again, the case, this is a guy that faked a hate crime. He said that two MAGA-wearing people in the middle of the night during a polar vortex in Chicago, you know, threw bleach on him and beat him up and put a noose over his head. It was all BS. To this day, Jesse Smollett says that that all still happened. His, you know, people that love him and support him, his family say all that still happens. But he was convicted, and then we got down to the sentencing. And so before the judge read the sentencing, he was absolutely reaming Jesse Smollett for wasting the time of the Chicago PD, for wasting all the resources of all these different people for something that was an obvious race hoax. And so I'm sitting here thinking, oh my gosh, he's about to bring the hammer down on this guy. And then he just said five months in prison. I think it was technically 150 days in prison. That was all that he was put on. And, you know, Jesse Smollett made this big theatrical thing while he was in, you know, the courtroom and all that. But then he was released like less than a week later. They were saying he was released pending an appeal because the appeal timing was going to be longer than the case or whatever. So it looks like Jesse Smollett, aside from having to pay a minor fine for somebody that's worth as much as he is, he's going to be getting off with this. So, you know, this is a guy that should have went to prison for a very, very long time for perpetrating a, a hate hoax. And the, the thing that I really like about this, and I think this is, goes back to Old Testament, is if you lie about somebody in a legal proceeding or something like that, you should get the sentencing that the other person would have gotten if you had not been found out. So I think he should be should have been in prison for as long as if this attack had actually happened and those men were, were caught, he should get the same sentence they would have gotten for assaulting somebody, you know, a federal hate crime, 
you know, assaulting someone because of their race and doing that type of thing. That's what should have happened, but it didn't happen. But hey, he's, he's going to be a martyr for forever. He's up there with the, you know, all the greats like, you know, St. George Floyd and Sir uh, Colin Kaepernick and all those people. Jesse Smollett's one of the greatest people ever, I guess. All right, next thing here, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this, but uh, there was a bipartisan bill that was supported for $1.5 trillion in new spending for the federal government. So here's the deal. Nobody cares about spending. Neither party. So I know that there are segments of the conservative party and the libertarian party that are that really hate spending and all that. But every time Republicans have been in office since George W. Bush, the spending has been absolutely and completely out of control. And this, again, this, this budget bill and all that kind of thing, it was supported by both parties, $1.5 trillion. Like we can't even count that high, but somehow that's what we're going to be spending as an, or as a, as a country and all those different things. So it is what it is. All right, let's move on to talk about abortion laws. So in the state of Oklahoma, my home state, Governor Stitt signed a law now making it a felony to perform an abortion. The only exception is for the health of the mother, which again, as I've explained on this podcast before, there's basically no scenario where the mother's health is going to be in such danger where the only viable outcome is to kill the child that's inside her. That's not a real thing. So this will be punishable by a fine of up to, I think it was $10,000. It might be $100,000. I can't remember or 10 years in prison. And so I love this. I love this for my home state. Again, people's heads were exploding. Oh my gosh. Okie women aren't going to be able to kill their babies anymore. This is terrible. This is horrible. Some people have said that the law doesn't really have any teeth. It's going to be challenged in court, but it at least went through. And in contrast, you have the state of Colorado. So the Democrat governor of the state of Colorado, Jared Polis, signed an abortion bill into law, which allows abortion up to the birthday, up to the day of birth. They allow abortion for any reason. So the law states this verbatim. A fertilized egg, embryo, or fetus does not have an independent or derivative rights under the laws of the state. So basically, if you're an unborn child, you have no, you have no rights. So think about it this way. If, you know, some guy decides to go off all half cocked and, you know, beat his pregnant wife to death, he's not going to be, you know, put on trial for two deaths, only the death of the mother, because that's the only life that they care about in the state of Colorado. Then you have the state of Maryland. So Senator, uh, this is state Senator Will Smith, a Democrat from Montgomery County. He introduced Senate Bill 669, which would decriminalize perinatal death related to failure to act. Okay. Perinatal, perinatal death related to failure to act. Basically what this means is if an abortionist, otherwise known as a demon, is performing an abortion and the baby lives. So the abortionist sucks at their job, praise God, the baby lives. Used to what they would do is they would just kind of put the baby to the side and let the baby expire. Otherwise known as die, otherwise known as infanticide, otherwise known as murder, right? But now they're introducing a bill to where that person, that doctor or that group of doctors and nurses would not be under any criminal liability if they put the baby to death by not acting to save it. Because some states, it's like, okay, if you're performing an abortion, you know, late-term abortion, but the baby's born alive— you now have to keep, apparently the Hippocratic Oath applies now, and you have to plug in and you basically keep this baby alive. State of Maryland, they're trying to make sure that that doesn't happen. Then we have Idaho. They had a new law banning abortion after six weeks. Uh, it's being held up in court because of a lawsuit by Planned Parenthood, you know, one of the you know most horrific satanic organizations of all time, if not number one. Again, I would ask the people that put this law out there, after six weeks, you're essentially eradicating all abortion, but are you saying the lives before six weeks don't matter? Again, it might be potato, potato, uh, potato <laughs> to some of you guys out there, but it just kind of is what it is. And the last one, we have the state of Florida. So Governor DeSantis signed a bill into law just a week or two ago, banning abortion after 15 weeks. Kind of weak tea, 
considering Ron DeSantis is basically hitting at all these issues and hitting home runs. I don't feel like this was a home run. I feel like this was a stand-up double, you know, banning it after 15 weeks. Because again, what are we saying about the babies that are earlier than 15 weeks? All those babies that are aborted in the first trimester, are you saying that those aren't important children that need to be saved and protected? But those are all things that are going on right now. I bring up all of those from those five different states. I think it was five because all this should remind us of what we're waiting for uh, in June. Because around June, we should hear what the Supreme Court of the United States is going to decide in terms of Roe v. Wade, because they're deciding on the abortion bill in the state of Mississippi, which would be a direct attack on really the core tenets and foundations of Roe v. Wade. And the thing about it is, is I, I, again, I'm trying not to be too terribly pessimistic, but I just am pessimistic at this point. I don't think it's going to overturn Roe v. Wade. I don't think it's going to be significantly damaged, but it could be. So something to make sure that we keep paying attention to. All right, let's talk about gas prices and inflation. So according to Statista, 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 I don't know what it says. Maybe I'll put it in the show notes. Statista.com, April 2020, the average price per gallon of gas in the United States was $1.94 across the board in the United States in April 2020. By March of 2022, the average price per gallon of gas in the United States, $4.32. More than double in less than two years. Okay. The Biden administration is desperately trying to make the Putin price hike a thing. They're saying, oh, this is Putin's price hike and all those different things. That's why inflation is so bad. That's why gas prices are so bad. Most of the people aren't buying it in the United States because they knew that things were getting way, way, way more expensive for the entire first year of his presidency, well before Putin decided to invade Ukraine. But that's been going crazy since I last uh, was in the studio. Rachel Levine was named the US, one of USA Today's Women of the Year. So he is the Assistant Secretary for Health. He is in the military. He is a dude that has grown his hair out and dresses up like a woman, but he has been named as one of the women of the year by the, by USA today, which is absolutely hilarious. And also it's hilarious and maybe not hilarious. The Babylon B was actually banned from Twitter and still as of today is banned from Twitter because they put out a thing saying that I can't even remember exactly what it said, but it was basically saying that, you know, uh, she was the man of the year or something like that. It was just, again, the Babylon B. So it was being sarcastic and ingesting all those different things, but that's just the world that we live in now. As soon as Bruce Jenner decided to be Caitlyn Jenner, he won man of the year and <clears throat> got an SB and all these other different things. That's just the world that we're going to have to constantly be dealing with and living in. All right, next thing, this is should have been, you know, front page news everywhere, but it was buried for over a year. But the Hunter Biden laptop story was confirmed by all the mainstream media to include the New York Times. So all these people that could not be bothered with the Hunter Biden laptop story for any length of time, all of a sudden decided that it matters. Maybe because Joe Biden, this is what I actually think was happening. They had to make sure Joe Biden got elected. So he got elected, but here we are, we're, we're in the middle of one of the worst presidencies ever, and it's only in its second year. So I think they're setting up to get Joe Biden out of the way. Okay. So to make room for Kamala Harris or to make room for Michelle Obama or to make room for Pete Buttigieg or make room for Dwayne Johnson or somebody like that. I think this is kind of the start of that. So I think we might see more and more stories coming out over the next several years, uh, leading into the midterms and certainly after the midterms about how Joe Biden maybe isn't all there mentally, how there's some corruption issues. I think they might try be trying to work out a replacement. Our next thing here, there's, uh, there was a tucking thing that was being taught a story that came out from the Oregon children's hospital. So I'm going to read something by Hank Berrien of the daily wire. So Dune Becker Children's Hospital in Portland, Oregon, which bills itself as Oregon's top ranked children's hospital, boasts a gender clinic, which offers advice for the safe tucking of a boy's genitals out of the way that can make the genital area look smoother and flatter, as well as a referral to a sex positive shop in Portland. They sell gender affirming clothing items as well as sex toys, videos and more. 
So this is a children's hospital in the state of Oregon teaching children how to tuck their junk. John Cooper talked about this on his show. A few other people just kind of mentioned it. But this is where the logical outworking of the LGBTQ, specifically the trans agenda, works itself out. So you have a little boy or a little girl that perhaps has gender dysphoria and thinks they're the opposite gender, or they're just a tomboy, or they're just an effeminate girl or an effeminate boy or something like that. And so as opposed to telling them, ah, this is just a phase, you'll grow out of it, or hey, little kid, little boy, take off that dress and put on some jeans and a t-shirt. As opposed to saying that, we're going to say, hey, here's some ways that you can tuck your junk behind you and sit down and be comfortable all day long, which will obviously lead to gender reassignment surgery, which is going to create a lot more revenue for that hospital, you know, all the pills and all the different things that they're going to have to do. That's basically what we're dealing with right now. So if you didn't know that, now you do. So go in and have, have, you know, have your nightmares about that. Let's get into the next story here. Jorge Masvidal jumped Colby Covington. So here's the thing that those are two UFC fighters. They fight in the welterweight division. Colby Covington is the second best uh, fighter in the world. Jorge Masvidal is one of the most overrated fighters in the world, but those guys used to be teammates. They had a bunch of beef between one another. They fought on March the 5th. That was UFC 272, five round main event, 25 minutes. And it was a one-sided beat down and the guy swinging the hammer was Colby Covington, which everybody with a brain knew was going to happen. I think in the fourth round, Jorge Masvidal dropped Colby for like a half second, but didn't really follow up with any damage. Colby Covington won that. The beef escalated afterwards you know it's not a good thing Colby Covington everyone hates him everyone loves Jorge Masvidal street uh, you know Judas all there's all this stuff that happens right there but all this led up to uh, a night in March this is March 22nd where Jorge Masvidal sucker punched Colby Covington while he was leaving a steakhouse in Miami and so when I say sucker punched again this is a guy that for 25 minutes he was in there with his shirt off and a referee and could deal with his beef with Colby Covington and just sucked it up because he's not nearly as good as Colby Covington right so he wears a mask outdoors in Florida and a hood, sneaks up on Colby Covington because he had been told that Colby was eating at that restaurant, sneaks up on him, punches him a couple of times, and then runs away. So all you guys that are your big Jorge Masvidal fans and you love him and all, oh, you know, three piece and a soda and all these different things and, and you think he's the greatest guy ever and all that. And again, I think he's entertaining. That's your boy. That guy. Like what a punk move. To jump somebody, like as opposed to saying, to seeing him from a block away and saying, Colby, I'm on my way. We're going to sell this in the streets. We're going to do it Miami style, you know, blah, 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 you know, throw up your area code, throw up your zip code, blah, blah. As opposed to all that, you sneak up on him and punch him. Because when you had 25 minutes to punch him legally, you didn't decide to do it. So Colby Covington, you know, understandably calls the police because he had just been assaulted. They say, you know, he may have chipped or broken a tooth, um, you know, broke his watch, all these different things. And so Jorge Masvidal was arrested for this. He might end up having to do some time for this. He's at least going to have to pay a huge fine and do some community service. And people are getting on Colby somehow. Like this was his fault. It's like, yes, he was selling the fight. People were like, oh, well, Colby talked about his wife and kids. Colby mentioned Jorge Masvidal's wife and kids at these uh, press releases or these press conferences. He mentioned them. He didn't say, oh, I'm going to beat up your wife or oh, I'm going to steal your kids. He didn't do anything like that. He mentioned them. And somehow that is everybody's way to defend Jorge Masvidal for doing this is because, oh, he, he talked about his wife and kids. It's not the same thing. Jorge acted like a punk. Colby was completely justified. Let's move on. All right, next thing here, Dave Rubin, who is a big time conservative commentator, he announced that he and his husband are going to be having kids. So on March the 16th, Dave Rubin announced on Twitter that he and his husband were going to have children. Again, they can't have children. They're essentially buying a woman's eggs and, you know, renting their bodies so that they can have kids. Apparently they're supposed to have one in August and one in October. So this is gross and disgusting. 
Uh, I hate that people are doing this or utilizing uh, medical technology to basically do these things, to, to have children, to be born into an unnatural family of two fathers or, or two women or something like that. I think it's gross and I think it's, it's outside of God's plan and I don't like it at all. And luckily, or I guess not luckily, but rightfully so, a lot of conservative commentators, again, because Dave Rubin is on the right now, a lot of conservative commentators came out and said, yeah, I don't like this. I don't think this is good. But then there were other conservative commentators that came out and were like, yeah, we're so proud of you and we're so happy for you, blah, 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 and all those different things. In terms of me, if I was, uh, you know, more prominent and, you know, on Fox News or any of those other bigger platforms or something like that, I would have either not mentioned it or I would have come out and said, I don't think this is a good thing. I don't think it's good for those children. And, you know, no matter what you do to try and supplement a boy, I, mean, I think they're both having, they're having two boys, I believe. A boy needs his mother. A little girl needs his mother. And you need an intact family unit. Like all the sociological data and all the stuff that we see, it all points in that exact same direction. So I, I, you know, this is me coming out saying, I don't agree with this. I don't think this is a good thing. It certainly should not be celebrated. All right. Now we're going to talk about the CDC. And every time I talk about this, I have to be very, very careful about the words I use. So the CDC lowered their C word death count by 72,000 people without explanation. Okay. So you have to wonder if that has something to do with the fact that Joe Biden is now in office and they're trying to make the C word look like it's not as severe, especially as we're working towards midterms. And uh, we, we don't want, you know, people are still mad about having to wear masks in the airport or on airplanes and all these different things. But out of nowhere, they said it was just an error that almost 75,000 people that were counted as C word deaths didn't die from the C word. Something to keep paying attention to as we go out. All right. Now we're going to talk about the Hillsong scandal. So Hillsong Church in Australia. The founder and lead pastor, Brian Houston, resigned from his post after it came to light that he hid his late father's child sexual abuse scandal. So uh, Discovery Plus actually released a three-part docuseries exposing a lot of the problems that happened inside the church. I've not watched that. A lot of people have asked me about it. I just haven't really found the time or really, I don't really know how I would <clears throat> go about watching that. But this is the same church where Carl Lentz, you know, who was uh, Hillsong, New York City, he cheated on his, on his wife and was doing all these crazy things behind the scenes. And it's just another prominent pastor that's been taken out by a sex scandal. But part of me is like, how could you not see this coming? Like all these big church pastors, especially these mega churches, like why are people shocked when they've done crazy things like this? And I think part of it is because there are a lot of people that were worshiping Hillsong and not worshiping God. They're worshiping Hillsong United as opposed to singing to the Father. And, you know, a lot of these churches, they make sure you do that. So if you go to Elevation Church, you don't say that. You say, I go to Stephen Furtick's church. If you go to Life Church, you don't say that. You say, I go to Craig Rochelle's church, right? That, that's kind of your thing. You kind of wear it like a badge of honor that you're following this person. Because I got to be honest with you, I went to Craig Rochelle's church, Life Church, for almost 12 or 13 years, right? It would not surprise me one bit if it came to light that he was uh, sinning in a sexual way. Or that he is a deviant in one way or another. And that's not because I presume to know anything about him personally. I've shaken his hand once. Again, he was my pastor, and yet he had no idea who I was, right? That's part of the issue with some of these churches that are enormous. But when you do something like that, when, whenever that's kind of your setup, you're, you're looking at these people as if they're infallible, and they clearly are. So when a pastor, you know, has some sort of sexual sin or some sort of other deviancy, it's like, dude, they're just like you. They've just put them, they're just a professional Christian. And some of these guys are great. Like they, they really are solid to their core of who they are, but it would not shock me if anybody pick a pastor, pick a prominent pastor, John MacArthur or Vody Bauckham or Matt Chandler, anyone else that I've said on this show that I love their ministry and love what they do. It would not shock me if any of those people had horrible things that came out about the stuff that they do behind closed doors. And the reason is because they're people like I was, 
I was shocked, to be honest, when Robbie Zacharias, all the stuff came out about all of his sexual sin after he died. And from that point forward, it's like, all right, nobody can be trusted, <laughs> right? Like they, they can't be trusted with our kids. They can't be trusted with anything. Like listen and see what you can learn from them, but they're just dudes. Don't put your faith in these people. And Hillsong's no different. And the thing about it is, is, and he was talking about Craig Rochelle again and kind of bringing it back to that. He's good friends with Brian Houston and the people at Hillsong. He, he's good friends with Bill Hybels, you know, uh, from uh, whatever church was in Chicago. And he kind of came out for having all this sexual sin. I think it was back in like 2018, 2019. He's buddies with Stephen Furtick, who's got plenty of issues, which his ministry probably should fall apart because of the stupid crap that he's saying out loud. But it's like, if you're supposed to be defined by the common denominator of all your closest friends or confidants, it's like, that's got to kind of say something about who you are. And again, I'm not just throwing stones at Craig because he's got a big church. It's in my backyard or something like that. I'm just saying, I have got a lot of people that listen to this show that are fans of Life Church. Just be wary. Respect him, respect his family, follow him, buy his books, listen to his podcast for whatever pastor that you have that's in your life that you're doing that with. But don't be shocked if it comes to pass that they've done some really horrifically evil things, right? That's probably warrants another whole podcast, but we got to move on because we got to talk about Will Smith smacking Chris Walk. Well, we've obviously got to talk about that. That happened at the Oscars. So all of you have seen this by now. That's probably the most famous thing that's happened on of all the things that have happened over the last several months. But Chris Rock obviously says a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith. Will Smith comes up on stage, smacks him, goes back to his chair, screams, keep my wife's name out your effing mouth, says it twice. One of the craziest things we've ever seen on live television. It's the only reason why anyone should be talking about the Oscars, which is kind of weird because conservative commentators like the Oscars aren't even relevant. And then they spend the first 30 minutes of their show talking about the Oscars. But that's obviously a relevant thing. So everyone's kind of given their piece on it. I'm going to try to do my short piece on it. So Chris Rock's joke was incredibly innocuous. It was incredibly mild, especially compared to some of his other jokes that he said out loud. What you saw is a very unstable man in Chris, Chris Rock who has basically been tortured by his crazy wife. And he thought somehow that was a good thing for him to go up there and do that. But I do find it hilarious. All the people on the left, all the Chris Rock or haters or Will Smith nut huggers, whatever, they immediately came out and said, yeah, he's defending his wife and defending her honor and more men should do this and stuff like that. And it's like, have y'all been not paying attention to the fact that they've had a completely open marriage for years? That he's a cuck? That Will Smith is a cuck? That he either is okay with other men railing his wife and or he likes watching it and finds sexual pleasure in that? Like, are, are we just not going to talk about that part? So you're like, yeah, old-fashioned manhood. Let's go up there and smack a guy for saying something mean to your wife. And yet he's a cuck. Like, I don't understand it. And again, these other people, if that had been a white guy that walked up on stage and smacked Chris Rock, it would still be on the front page of every major newspaper and they would lead every show on CNN and MSNBC about it, about how it's white supremacy and about how that person should be killed and should be go career should be ruined. But it's a black guy smacking a black guy and it's no big deal. It's a guy who likes uh, the fact that his wife is having sex with other men going up and smacking a guy from, you know, making an alopecia joke about the fact that she can't have hair. So there's nothing commendable about this. The fact that he was able to go up there and get a standing ovation for getting the best actor award right after that was ridiculous and egregious. I think I've said the word egregious 12 times this podcast so far. That can be your drinking game for the show, but it was a ridiculous situation. Will Smith was banned from the Academy for at least 10 years. It's kind of one of those weird things. He'll make his big comeback. The 11th year he'll come back and he'll probably get an award for that. And, you know, eh. It's just such a stupid situation, although it is pretty crazy. 
All right, next one here, guys. We got a few more to go. Let's go. Record alcohol-related deaths in 2020. So from 2019 to 2020, alcohol-related deaths were up 25%, which should be a shock to nobody uh, in terms of the lockdowns because you have all these people that don't have community. They're not getting vitamin D by going outside. They're staying inside drinking. And we were told, hey, we got to keep the liquor stores open because, uh, you know, in 2020 because it's essential because if you cut off liquor supply to people that are alcoholics, you know, they'll die out and whatever. And yet we have a 25% increase in alcohol-related deaths in 2020. So it's like we kept all the stores open. Look, now we got all these deaths. So kind of a crazy situation there. Next one here, Citigroup, which is one of the largest financial institutions on the planet. They have begun paying for travel expenses for female employees of theirs that wish to kill their babies, but live in a state where they try to limit the number of babies that are murdered. So the new policy from Citigroup, uh, which went into place earlier this year, is, quote, in response to changes in reproductive health care laws in certain states in the U.S. And so that's something that the, the bank said. They said that in a filing to the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. So you're going to be seeing a lot about this now. You're going to see a lot of states that are kind of restricting abortion or getting rid of it and eradicating it entirely. And yet, here we are, we're going to be having these large corporations that are going to say, well, you know, you work in Texas and you can't get an abortion there anymore. We'll fly you over to Louisiana or we'll bring you to California or we'll bring you to New York so you can kill your baby and then we'll send you back. It's evil. It's crazy, but it's here and it's here to stay. All right. We have HHS. They endorsed the gender transition for children. So that's the uh, Department of Health and Human Services. So that's the Biden administration, Department of Health and Human Services. They recommend gender transition treatment for minors. Okay, what they're calling it is gender affirmation care, okay, or gender affirming care. So from Andrew Mark Miller at Fox News, he said this, the HHS documents describe what is what it calls appropriate treatments for transgender adolescents, including top surgery to create male typical chest and enhanced breasts, and bottom surgery, surgery on genitals or reproductive organs, facial feminization, or other procedures. So all this is going to be happening on the taxpayer dole, because obviously that entire department of HHS is, is supported by uh, U.S. taxpayers. But again, the United States government is all in on the gender transition revolution. They're all in on this. Okay. So the thing about it is, is this is going to be in place for almost four years before we have perhaps a new president here in a little while. So even if a Republican uh, president uh, comes into office, how are they going to undo a lot of these things that have been done? Because it's kind of one of those things now, like look at gay marriage. You can't run a Republican-based election on, hey, we're going to be getting rid of gay marriage. Right. Because it's old hat now. It's something we don't even talk about anymore because it seems like it's settled. So that's the thing that I think is the most uh, harmful moving forward is kind of what we might see if people can't undo some of these things. All right, let's look at the National Football League again, which I don't follow, but they expanded the Rooney Rule. So if you're not familiar with that, the Rooney Rule established in 2003 required that teams interview at least one minority candidate for any head coaching vacancy. So they expanded the rule again in 2020, saying that teams must interview at least two external minority candidates for all head coaching jobs, and teams were required to interview at least one minority candidate for any coordinator job. But they further expanded the Rooney Rule while I was gone. Uh, now women now must be part of the external minority candidate interview pool. All 32 teams also must employ, they have to employ either a woman or a person of color to serve as an offensive assistant starting this coming season. And all Zoom interviews are banned now. So if you're going to be interviewing one of these people via the Rooney rule, you have to pay for them to come in, bring them in in order to do that. The thing about this is, is this is obviously an affirmative action push. The NFL has gone woker faster than I ever could have imagined. I don't think they deserve our time and our attention because of the things they're trying to signal from the front office. And I just wonder who this is serving. Because let's say you're the, you know, Cincinnati Bengals and you just have to, you have to hire a woman or a person of color to be an offensive assistant, but they don't deserve the job. But you just had to hire one. 
right? And I'm not saying all women and all, uh, you know, uh, people of color don't deserve those jobs. It should be a meritocracy of anything on the planet. The NFL or a professional sports league should be a meritocracy at every single level. You shouldn't be the water boy unless you're the best water boy possible or water person possible for that job. So you're just going to hire some random chick or person of color to be an offensive uh, assistant for what? Because the very next thing that we're going to be seeing is these people are going to get hired and then they're not going to be given any responsibilities. And so you're going to have some chick or a person of color quit their job and then they're going to come out and do a press conference with, you know, uh, some reverend on one side and some lawyer on the other and Colin Kaepernick in the back basically saying, yeah, they didn't give me enough opportunities. Like I should have been, you know, I started out as, as the guy that was basically making sure the balls were, um, you know, filled up with air for the kicker and they didn't give me the head coaching job. And I was there for three months. This is racism. So be ready for that. All right. Next thing, coach Mike Krzyzewski of Duke. He coached his last game this year in March madness. So they lost their last game at Cameron Indoor. So this was Coach K, legendary coach. They lost his last game at Cameron Indoor to UNC, their arch rival. Horrible, horrific. And then somehow the 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 fates of of sports, the sports gods came together and made it to where UNC, an eight seed, played Duke in the final four, and UNC won again. The ultimate own forever. Duke is never going to be able to shake that, that their final two games against their arch rival last game in Cameron indoor for coach K and at the final four UNC won. So KU went on to go ahead and win that, which I was rooting for either KU uh, Duke or Baylor to win the whole thing. Cause I got friends that support all those different schools, but just real quick uh, rundown of coach K's career accomplishments, 47 year career total, 42 of those were at Duke. In his 42 seasons at Duke, he only missed the NCAA tournament five times. His win percentage for his career was 766. Uh, he had 1196 Division One victories as a head coach, which is a record. Duke was number one uh, for 127 weeks in the AP poll. That's a record. He has three Naismith College Coach of the Year awards. That's uh, tied for the record with uh, John Calipari of Kentucky. Five national titles. That's second all time behind John Wooden. Twelve Final Four appearances. That's second behind uh, second behind John Wooden. And three consecutive men's basketball Olympic gold medal. So one of the greatest coaches of any sport, I think it is arguable that he's perhaps the greatest coach of any sport ever. Nick Saban comes to mind. There's uh, some other folks that kind of come to mind, but an absolutely incredible career that is now over with. All right, let's get into Elon Musk. We've made it all the way without talking about Elon Musk. So is Elon Musk going to buy Twitter? Again, it's Monday before I release this. So in three days last week, we went from him having, you know, a 9% stake in becoming Twitter's largest shareholder to basically rejecting the fact that he wanted to be on the board to offering just to buy them outright. And so again, he acquired the shares in April, 73.5 million shares worth about $3 billion to making them the largest shareholder of Twitter. And then last week he offered to buy all of Twitter for $43 billion. That's $54 and 20 cents per share, which is well above the market valuation for the company. I think it was like market valued at th- you know, $30 per share. But I want to read this according to Tim Pierce over at the daily wire. Twitter's desperate gambit on Friday to stave off Elon Musk's bid for a hostile takeover is technically known as a shareholder's rights plan, but investors call it a poison pill. Here's how it works and what might happen next. A poison pill allows other shareholders, but not the would-be buyer, to scoop up newly minted shares at a discount, boosting their investments while forcing the target to swallow economic poison by having his shares diluted. The move is an unmistakable signal that the board is not interested in the prospective hostile acquirer, despite Uh, a potential profit for shareholders. If the maneuvers succeed, shareholders are certain to flood the court with lawsuits, accusing the directors of Twitter of breaching their fiduciary duties. There are three possible outcomes now, none of which are ideal for Twitter's current board. 
Musk could win by successfully initiating a proxy contest to remove the directors and nix the poison pill. Musk forces the company to find a white knight or alternative buyer potentially at a higher price, thus making his shares more valuable. Musk walks away and leaves the company and board facing a pile of lawsuits as shareholders blame them for hurting the value of the stock. Okay, so guys, as of the recording of this podcast, Musk is trying to convince reportedly other investors to join his bid to purchase the entire company. What I'll say on this is I wanted to believe that other platforms like Gitter and Gab and uh, there's another one that I'm, that I'm kind of forgetting, Parler. I wanted to believe that those things could be built and compete with Twitter, but they were always, and even True Social, Trump's thing that he doesn't even use, those things are just worse forms of Twitter with only right-wing people on them, okay? So it's not the town square in the way that Twitter is. But it never really occurred to me that all Elon Musk needed to do was just buy the whole thing. Buy the whole thing, take it private, and fix it. Get rid of all the woke stuff. Get rid of all the people that, that hate free speech. Get rid of all the people that are doxing, uh, that are allowing doxing for people that they like, but not for people that they don't like. Get rid of the people that are, you know, taking people off, kicking off libs of TikTok, kick, kicking off the Babylon Bee, kicking off Donald Trump, kicking off all these people and let it be the town square again. So by the time you hear this, there's going to be way more to this story. So I don't want to talk too much more because I don't want to have to take my foot out of my mouth later, but I'm hoping that Elon Musk does this. But again, Elon Musk is not a right wing figure. That's something people have to kind of remember. Perhaps he's a free speech absolutist, right? Perhaps he's not, but I think it would be cool that we have our first African-American owning one of the major social media platforms in the United States. All right, next thing, let's talk about the five. So this is going to get a little bit, uh, a little bit rough, but you know, kind of a warning to anybody with kids that are watching this either on YouTube or rumble, but the five refers to the recovery of five murdered intact children in the, in DC area. So this was discovered by progressive anti-abortion uprising PAAU. This group obtained a box containing baby remains from a Curtis Bay energy driver. So this driver was sent to an abortion facility to pick up what they dub medical waste. So the babies that were killed, uh, were killed at the Surges center in Washington, D.C. So in this box that they obtained, it contained 110 children, mostly first trimester children, including five children that underwent late abortions. Uh, and they were all uh, beyond the point of viability. There's even some evidence that some of these children were born alive and then killed after. So this group rightly gave all of these children names. So they named the five children, uh, Christopher X, Harriet, Angel, Holly, and Phoenix. And so if you're watching this on video, I'm going to take a quick break and I'm going to show you the pictures of Harriet Phoenix and Christopher X. If you're just listening to this, uh, it's just going to, I'm just going to be going on to my next comment. But if you're watching this, you will see the pictures. I will tell you if you're watching this, the pictures are absolutely horrifying, but you should look at them because a lot of people like to sanitize what abortion is in their brains. And then they, they don't kind of, they just want to move past it. They don't want to kind of like deal with it. So if you're watching this on video, I'm going to go ahead and show you these pictures now. If not, I'll be right back. So the pictures are horrific. They're, they're hard to watch. They're hard to look at, surely. But the thing, the story just keeps getting even, even worse. The Curtis Bay Medical Waste Services uh, company, they burn their medical waste to create energy for the city of Baltimore. That's something that they do in order to kind of create city, uh, you know, parts for the, the city of Baltimore. So for God knows how long, they've been using aborted baby parts to heat your home if you live in Baltimore or to fire up your television or PlayStation. So that's something crazy to think about. Also, the D.C. authorities, they almost immediately said when this came to light that they didn't want to do autopsies on the kid. They, they were brought five murdered and mutilated bodies, and they decided, yeah, we probably don't need to do an autopsy. 
We probably don't need to know how and when these children were murdered. Again, because this goes against the entire agenda, the pro-abortion agenda. And so you can't have the D.C. police in this area that really loves baby murder as much as they do. You can't have them come out against this. And so there have been a lot of calls for an investigation here, a lot of calls for an investigation into is this another Kermit Gosnell situation that I've kind of fallen on deaf ears. It's kind of where we are at this point. All right. The next thing we're going to talk about is the shooting in the New York City subway. So this is according to the AP. A gunman wearing a mask set off smoke grenades and fired a barrage of bullets inside a rush hour subway train in Brooklyn, wounding at least 10 people. This was on Tuesday, April the 12th, authorities said. So this guy fired almost three dozen bullets and managed to kill nobody. It is a miracle that God spared uh, was able to help, you know, basically protect all these people. Um, the suspect was apprehended about 30 hours after this incident, and he was apprehended because he called the police and told them where he was at. So the people in New York, you know, uh, the, the mayor and the governor were like, yeah, we got him. It's like, you didn't get him. He got himself. But the accused man is 62 year old Frank James. So he was known by the FBI. This guy had a very, very long rap sheet. And this is a guy that expressed, uh, and, you know, this is important. It's not important to a lot of other people, but this guy is black. That is pertinent and uh, to the story because he expressed a bunch of extreme, violent, black nationalist views on social media for years. And the thing about this story that's so interesting is after we found out who the guy was, and after we found out about his extremist and black nationalist views that he posted and how much he hated white people and how he was going to kill them and all those different things, the story left the headlines almost as quickly as it entered. It reminded me exactly of what happened on Sunday, November the 21st, 2021 in Waukesha, Wisconsin, when Daryl Brooks drove his Ford SUV. It didn't drive itself, drove his Ford SUV through a Christmas parade, killing six people. You know, as of now, I think there's other people that are having complications and injuring 60 more people. Five people died on the scene and one died later. Tamara Duran, 52 years old. Wilhelm Hospital, 81. Jane Coolidge, 52. Leanna Owen, 71. Virginia Sorensen, 79. And eight-year-old Jackson Sparks. Well, when's the last time you heard about that? Do you know where Daryl Brooks is in, in the whole process there? I bet you don't. Because it doesn't fit a narrative. Again, if there had been a, a Black Pride Parade, uh, you know, uh, Black History Month Parade, going down whatever street in America, and a white guy, that for years had been expressing, you know, neo-Nazi sentiments or anti-black sentiments or white supremacy sentiments or something like that. If he drove his SUV through a parade celebrating uh, black pride and black history month and you know, all that, we would still be hearing about it every single day. Why? Because it fits the narrative that the United States is a horrific racist country that harbors white supremacy and kills black people whenever they want to. It's not true, but that doesn't matter. So the same thing here. This is a guy, the 62-year-old Frank James, that wanted to kill as many white people as he possibly could. And he, he tried real, real hard. Shot three dozen or so bullets, managed to kill nobody, thank God. But it doesn't really matter because it doesn't fit the mainstream media narrative. And again, on the right, we're not going to be talking about this for very long because we've got other things that we've got to be mad about. So guys, we made it in. We're about an hour and a half into this podcast. I'm going to cut it off there. We, we've talked about a lot of different things. And guys, there were more things that I wanted to talk about that even as I was preparing this episode, I just took it out because it's like, we'll try to stick it to meat and potatoes. So I hope you guys enjoyed that breakdown. But as we move forward into the future, we're going to be doing kind of a miniature version of that towards, you know, kind of the middle part of our shows moving forward. So if you have things that you are made aware of, if you live in a particular area and there's a story that you feel like is important and should get some national attention, make sure you send it to me. 
send me a DM on social media or send it to my email info at undaunted.life. But before we let you guys know, we are going <laughs> to, before we let you go, rather, we're going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here's the links I've got for you today. I've got a link to us if you want to support us. So it's the link to our donation page on our website. I've also got a link to the 100 books every modern Christian man should read list that's on our website. Also, I've got a link for dailywire.com. I think you guys should go and support the Daily Wire. Become a member. I'm a member because they're the ones that are fighting back and pushing back in the culture war. So we need to support organizations. I tell people all the time, if you like our content, support us. Don't just consume it. Be a part of what we're doing here. I think you should do the same thing with The Daily Wire. Also, I've got Cooper Stuff, episode 106. It's called I'm Not a Biologist with Kyle Thompson. So that was my interview on John Cooper's show. And then also I've got a link to the live action article called Pro-Life Group Says Bodies of Five Aborted Babies in D.C. Obtained for Medical Waste Truck Driver. That's going to have some of the pictures. So again, if you weren't watching this on Rubble or YouTube, you can look at the pictures I told you about earlier because it's very, very important that you know what's going on. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to this. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Birds Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.